Well, I just have to um, thank Carol and his granddaughter, Holly. So please, you're with us and for that beautiful and inspiring song, Here I Am, Lord. You know, Ginger and I enjoy so much, you know, meeting with other couples. And a question we, we always love to ask is, is how did you meet? And they're always interesting stories. So many are different. Some are childhood sweethearts. Uh, some were blind dates. Some falling for a friend's date, perhaps, on that blind date. Uh, they're co-workers, meeting in a bar, sometimes even meeting in a church. It's all different kinds of ways. And, of course, the big trend now is uh, through Internet matching services. Uh, We had neighbors in Philadelphia who met each other through newspaper classified ad. So all different kinds of ways. But few are as peculiar as the story of uh, Isaac and Rebecca. So we're going to take a look at this story today. We're in Genesis uh, chapter 24. I invite you to turn there uh, in your Bibles. You can also, if you wish, uh, just use the insert that's in the bulletin as well uh, to follow along. Genesis uh, chapter 24. Uh, Sarah has died. That's what happened in the previous chapter, chapter 23. We've, we've skipped over that. Uh, Isaac is 40 years old. He is still living at home with dad. It had not occurred to uh, either man that uh, Isaac should be finding a wife. Kind of makes like a modern story uh, today in many ways, doesn't it? But finally, the idea does occur to Abraham. But instead of uh, sending his son, he sends his servant to do the job. Now, again, I want to remind you of the sermon series. You know, when it's being advertised on those cards and it says Genesis, uh, the people... Uh, their problems, God's solution. Well, in this case, the people are Abraham and Isaac. Problem is finding a suitable wife uh, for Isaac, and the solution is to get an old servant, send him out to pick her out, and haul her back. So something, something that many parents, particularly fathers, probably wish they could have done uh, for their own kids. So, reviewing the sermons on Genesis 24, because I, I, I went online, you can go online and look up other people's sermons on this, and say, well, you know, what are we going to do with this? This is a long uh, chapter, it's the longest one in Genesis. And when you look at it, apparently what most ministers did, they have sermon titles like How to Find a Wife, or on marriage, and particularly about the wife, what, what qualities that she needs to have. And it seems like the chapter is nothing more than just a good story to tell of how I married your mother. So let's see what we can find here. Beginning in verse 1. Now Abraham was old, well advanced in years, and the Lord had blessed Abraham in all things. Abraham was probably about 140 years old. He makes even Frank Kemp a young whippersnapper. Okay? (laughs) Now, the point that's being made here is not so much about how old Abraham is, but it's about the story. It's a transition that's taking place. We're about to move beyond Abraham. He's soon to pass out of the story, 
into the story of Isaac. Now you'll notice at the beginning of the chapter, Isaac doesn't even appear. He doesn't enter into the story. He won't enter into the story until the end of the chapter. And at the end of the chapter, there will be no mention made of Abraham. See, that transition is taking place. And of particular significance is how Isaac is being referred to. At the beginning and throughout the story, the servant is going to refer to his master of Abraham. My master. My, Abraham is my master. And he'll refer to Isaac as the son of my master. When he returns with Rebekah, and they, they're getting close, and Rebekah looks ahead and sees Isaac, she asks the servant, who is that? And the servant will say, it is my master. So the baton is being passed on. That baton is the covenant promise. It's that covenant promise that God had first made with Abraham, and uh, it will then go to Isaac, and that will be spelled out in a couple of more chapters, in which God will reaffirm that covenant again, this time with Isaac. So remember, we talked about this in the last couple of weeks. The promise that had been made to Abraham was to be passed down through Isaac. Now the concern is for how Isaac is going to do that. How is that promise going to go down to the next generation? That's what the chapter is about. Now, Lincoln Duncan, some of you may know him. He was a senior pastor at First Pres in Jackson. And he preached a sermon on this. And he, he said this, what the passage is about. This is the story of the continuation of the line of providence, of promise. And how God, in his providence, brought about that continuation of the line of promise. The story is about the promise. How is it going to get passed down? And that now weighs on Abraham's mind. That's what's driving him to find a wife. Now, God, of course, could choose any means that he desires to achieve his promise. He could have chosen to do it through Hagar, son uh, Ishmael, but he did not. Instead, he, he wanted it to be through Isaac. Evidently, the right bloodline mattered. And evidently, that right bloodline was the bloodline of Abraham's father, uh, Terah. Terah was also Sarah's father, whom he had by another wife. It's complicated, so we won't go too far into that. But Abraham understands that that bloodline is not for now to be mixed with the Canaanites. Rather, Isaac's wife needs to be kept in the family. And so that's why he sends his old servant out back to another land where he had come from to go find a wife. So let's read this time verses uh, 2 through 9. And Abraham said to his servant, the oldest of his household, who had charge of all that he had, Put your hand under my thigh that I may make you swear by the Lord, the God of heaven and God of the earth, that you will not take a wife or my son from the daughters of the Canaanites among whom I dwell, but will go to my country and to my kindred and take a wife for my son Isaac. 
servant said to him, Perhaps a woman may not be willing to follow me to this land. Must I then take your son back to the land from which you came? Abraham said to him, See to it that you do not take my son back there. The Lord, the God of heaven, who took me from my father's house and from the land of my kindred, and who spoke to me and swore to me, To your offspring I will give this land. He will send his angel before you, and you shall take a wife for my son from there. But if the woman is not willing to follow you, then you will be free from this oath of mine. Only you must not take my son back there. So the servant put his hand under the thigh of Abraham, his master, and swore to him concerning this matter. And there are two clear concerns in this passage of Abraham's. First, the wife must not be a Canaanite. She must be from his family. Secondly, under no circumstances is Isaac to go back to that land, that land of Mesopotamia, which is where Abraham's family originated. Now, why is um, Abraham so insistent about Isaac not going? It is because the promise that was made to Abraham about offspring was not just about having offspring, but about the land, that promised land of Canaan. That's the promise. And he cannot risk sending Isaac out of that country to Mesopotamia and Isaac not returning. And so the servant departs. Now let's continue in the story. Verse 10. Then the servant took ten of his master's camels and departed, taking all sorts of choice gifts from his master, And he arose and went to Mesopotamia to the city of Nahor. And he made the camels kneel down outside the city by the well of water at the time of evening, the time when women go out to draw water. And he said, O Lord, God of my master Abraham, please grant me success today and show steadfast love to my master Abraham. Behold, I am standing by the spring of water, And the daughters of the men of the city are coming out to draw water. Let the young woman to whom I shall say, please let down your jar that I may drink. And who shall say drink? And I will water your camels. Let her be the one whom you have appointed for your servant Isaac. By this I shall know that you have shown steadfast love to my master. Okay, let's look at this. Ten ten camels. Why did the servant take ten camels? Well, evidently, he needed them to carry. There were other servants coming with him. He really needed it to carry all the gifts that he was bringing, that he was going to give to that bride and to the bride's family. It is a a show of Abraham's wealth. Remember verse 1. It said that the Lord had blessed Abraham in all things. He had made him very wealthy. I suppose today, uh, perhaps he would have traveled with a caravan of of ten limousines. It's a display. My master is wealthy. Now, what the servant does at the well, this is this is praised invariably by all the commentators as 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 wise, indeed as shrewd, 
I mean, what a clever way of finding a suitable wife. First of all, this is where all the eligible women will come. It's, it's one-stop shopping. Okay. He's just got to wait around. And then that idea of the sign, that she will offer to, to water his camels. I mean, what a smart way of finding a wife with the right spirit. It's, it's the kind of, it's the wife that every man wants to have, that she's just going to do all this stuff for her husband just in a cheerful way. Okay. Well, yes, yes. I mean, this is, you can see cleverness to this and so on. But Abraham had already given instructions on how to find the woman. Go to my relatives. All that the servant needed to do was ask where the house of Nahor was. It wouldn't have been hard to find. He goes there. He chooses among the the maidens, the daughters who were there. Now, here, he's asking God to select the woman for him before he has determined if she fits the one the only qualification that Abraham, his master, had given. I mean, what if Rebecca turned out to, um, to have been maybe the daughter of a, a Canaanite who had moved to Mesopotamia? Well, what would he have done? He would have been in a quandary, wouldn't he? Unfortunately, it, it all works out, and we, we have this great story. Well, what are we to, what are we to learn from this story? Maybe that uh, God, uh, that giving God signs to fill, that would be the best way to make uh, decisions. And many Christians do that. I mean, they you know, ask God to do this or that, give me this sign, and if you give me this sign, then I will know that I am supposed to, to do whatever it is that they're trying to make a decision about. Is that what the servant teaches us? Let's take a closer look at this unnamed servant. What do we know about him? Well, the first thing we know is that he is old. Indeed, he's the oldest in the household. Secondly, we know that he's trustworthy. So much so that Abraham has placed him in charge of of everything that he has. That was the same kind of of trust that uh, Joseph would later on earn when he was in Egypt. We know that he thinks matters through before committing himself. Abraham sends him on a mission. And the servant says, well, wait a minute here. It might not be able to complete it. What then? Perhaps the woman may not be willing to return. So it appears in this very brief introduction that we have what Proverbs refers to as a wise man. He thinks before he speaks. He makes no rash or postful promises, and he can be trusted. Now, what about that sign? What are we supposed to learn from that? Well, we can get a better understanding by looking again at the servant's prayer. Look with me in verse 12. O Lord, God of my master Abraham, please grant me success today. And show steadfast love to my master Abraham. Behold, I am standing by the spring of water, and the daughters of the men of the city are coming out to draw water. Let the young women to let yet the young woman to whom I shall say, Please let down your jar that I may drink, and who shall say drink, 
and I will water your camels. Let her be the one whom you have appointed for your servant Isaac. By this, I shall know that you have shown steadfast love to my master. Look very first at the beginning of how he addresses God. Lord God of my master Abraham. Well, is God not the God of the servant? Well, yes, he is. But more to the point that the, that the servant is thinking about is that he has gone on a mission on behalf of Abraham. Also what he knows, and this is even of more importance, he knows of this particular relationship between God and his master Abraham, that relationship of the covenant. And so he asks for success based on that relationship. Show steadfast love to my master Abraham. Show hesed. That's the Hebrew word, uh, which is being translated in, in the English Standard Version as steadfast love. If you have the uh, NIV, I think they translate it as perhaps kindness. But it is a love that is based on the covenant. Now, the servant, by the way, is also included in that relationship. When God gave Abraham the sign of the covenant, the servant also received that sign as a member of his master's household. Back in Genesis 17, 12, 13, let me read it to you. This is God instructing Abraham. Every male throughout your generations, whether born in your house or bought with your money from any foreigner who is not of your offspring, both he who is born in your house and he who is bought with your money shall surely be circumcised. So shall my covenant be in your flesh, an everlasting covenant. So he belongs to this covenant now, even though he's not part of the blood relationship. So, Going back to that sign, the sign then, he then submits a sign for God to reveal the woman. It's a good one because he can be pretty certain not many women would volunteer to draw water for ten thirsty camels. That task, it could, it could require her to draw up maybe 250 gallons of water. Okay, so let's cut it and let's just cut it down to just a mere 100 gallons of water. It's It's not an easy task. Now, this is no demand that the servant is making of God. It is a request. He hopes that God will be gracious. That is, that God will, out of his grace, that he will deign to respond. It could be that no woman will make the offer. It could be that the woman who offers is not of Abraham's relationships and Yes, he didn't, would have a little bit of a problem. He had to reconsider what to do. But if God should be generous, if he should be gracious and answer the servant's prayer, then it doubly confirms that Rebekah is God's chosen bride for Isaac. It confirms it for Rebekah. It confirms it for her family. It certainly confirms it for the servant. And when the servant gives a detailed account to the family of how his prayer was answered, everyone not only agrees that 
well, this must be of the Lord finding Rebekah. But they are, with Rebekah's consent, even to let her, let her depart the next day with this stranger. So, so not only the, is this a, a, a prayer then that, that he makes then at that time, he then offers another prayer after that prayer is answered. After Rebecca reveals who she is at the well, the servant lifts up thanksgiving right before her and says, Blessed be the Lord, the God of my master Abraham, who has not forsaken his steadfast love and his faithfulness toward my master. As for me, the Lord has led me in the way to the house of my master's kinsmen. I know what he says. First of all, note what he doesn't say. I give you thanks, God, for what a clever man that I am, that I was able to come up with this great idea. Though he had asked God for guidance, and it is God who must receive all the glory. Now, note, note what, he, what he notes that God has done. He says, Led me in the way to the house of my master's kinsmen. Abraham's command is fulfilled. And it's fulfilled clearly by the hand of Abraham's God, who yet again displays to Abraham his steadfast love and faithfulness. Now, it's interesting that the servant adds that concept of faithfulness. The faithfulness is toward Abraham, yes. But it is toward Abraham on the basis of God being faithful to his own word. Remember, he had made a covenant promise to Abraham of offspring and land, and God keeps his word. Even as we have seen, you know, Abraham's track record could be a little spotty there. Sometimes his faith is not what it ought to be. Nevertheless, God is faithful to his word. All right, let's go back to that well. We're looking at that sign. Here's what we can learn because that sign took place. First of all, without it. If he had never prayed about this sign, and he had done what I said he could have done. He could have said, where is the house of Nahor? He could have completed the instructions of Abraham. He could have found the family perhaps even have selected Rebecca, it could have taken place. And all that could have been surmised is that we have a faithful servant. He did his job. But because of the sign, all glory must be given to God. And indeed, including future readers like us, we have to sit there and we have to say, well, Rebecca was indeed God's chosen bride. No one can dispute that. The promise would come through Isaac and through the vessel of Rebekah. And this was all guaranteed by the providence of God in making the promise. Now, I mentioned there about providence. I want you to notice something that's missing in this story. In all the other stories with Abraham, it basically goes like this. When God speaks to Abraham, tells Abraham what he wants Abraham to do, and then Abraham responds. There are a couple of times in which, no, God doesn't speak to Abraham, 
Abraham comes up with a bright idea, like go to Egypt or go to Abimelech, and we'll, uh, we'll just, I'll just mention a Sarah as my sister. Or Sarah comes up with this great idea of, why don't, why don't you let Hagar be your wife? It never acts, it never results very good, does it? This is the one time in which we see Abraham making a decision. There's no record of God speaking to him. And there is success. Now, what's the difference? Well, it doesn't lie in Abraham. It lies in this unnamed servant who turns to the Lord in prayer for success. If there is a lesson to be learned, it is not that, yes, we need to keep putting signs out for God to fulfill. It is that we ought to be asking God for guidance and for success. That's what it's about. In our prayers, we ought to be like the servant. We ought to appeal to the covenant relationship that he has made with our master, Jesus Christ. This is what it means to pray in Jesus' name. Christ has mediated a new covenant on our behalf. Therefore, we can now go to God as God our Father, knowing that he will hear us. And we can know that he will show us steadfast love and faithfulness because he will show that to his son and to all who are in that covenant with his son. Remember, all this is about, it's about promise. And Jesus is the promise that came to reality. He's the promised seed through whom uh, that will be passed through Abraham, through Isaac, through Jacob, through all the generations until we come to the birth of Jesus Christ. It is Jesus Christ who will mediate a new and a better covenant with God the Father through his own sacrifice. It is through Jesus Christ that that promise made to Abraham that all nations will be blessed as the spiritual blessings of his covenant and will come upon us and will embrace people of every nation and every tongue and here we are as testimonies of it. All of this takes place through the providential care of God. Sometimes he will act directly in supernatural ways to enact his will, such as with the birth of Isaac. Oftentimes, he will act indirectly. Oftentimes through the prayers through the, of, of wise and, and, and godly of individuals such as Abraham's unnamed servant. And so it behooves us, not so much to ask for signs as to be given discernment. When we're praying to God, that he would open to us the signs of God at work. You know, one, a, person can be, a person can be committed to the study of the scriptures. I mean, a, a true student of it. And still be blind to the signs that God gives us in our lives. The best example of this were the Pharisees. The Pharisees were the conservatives of their day, devoted to the study of the word of God, and yet they missed the sign of the word made flesh. He's walking among them and teaching them. They miss it. Now, the servant did not have scripture to read and study. What did he have? He had the work of God in the life of his master. And no doubt, Abraham, his master, taught him about God. 
And so he then applied what he learned to his prayer life and to the responsibilities given him. We are to do the same thing. We have the scriptures to read and study. We know more than the servant about God and about the plan of God. So such knowledge should should then guide our prayer life and should guide the plans that we make. And there's one other lesson to note here. The reason that the servant's prayer no doubt was answered is because he was already being used by God to fulfill God's promised plan. That's what this is all about. It's not just about how do I find a wife. It's how this promised plan is to be fulfilled. In the same way, our prayers and our actions are more likely to be answered and be blessed when we are thinking and acting in accordance with the big promise plan, which is the spread of the gospel. I mean, if we're honest with ourselves, oftentimes our prayers and our thoughts tend to be focused on, well, whatever we perceive to be good for ourselves and for our families. That's why we can so easily become discouraged and easily frustrated when things do not go our way. You know, I prayed about it. It's not happening. Doesn't God care? Now, but think about this. What if the spread of the gospel was foremost in our thoughts? What if we always cared more about how the gospel is understood, how it is perceived by the way that we speak, the way that we relate to our neighbors? What if our hope lay not in what happens to us in this world, but rather lay solely in the life to come? To put it another way, what if we live truly by faith? That's what the chapter of Hebrews 11 is all about. Hebrews 11 opens up this way. It says, faith is, is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. And what he's going to do now is present to us folks who live that way. What if what really mattered is that inheritance, that promised land still to come? And so the author writes this. He's talking about different uh, folks. He's talking about Abraham and his family. And he says, These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of the land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country, that is, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. See, that's where the promise of Abraham takes us, to the heavenly country the heavenly city. What God wants us to do is stay focused on that. Stay focused on that promised plan of God. Stay faithful to it. And then whatever the circumstances may be that will come along in our lives, 
Well, we can do what the author of the hymn that we're about to sing did. The author of the hymn that we're going to be singing, It Is Well With My Soul, he wrote it after the learning of the drowning of his daughters. And he writes this. How can he write it? Because his hope, his faith, is towards the heavenly city. Let's pray. Keep our eyes upon our Lord Jesus Christ, our Father. Keep our eyes upon the hope to which he came in the first place to provide for us this inheritance of eternal glory. Keep it ever before us, and may we live by that. May we base our prayers upon it. May we be faithful to you, coming to you in prayer, looking to you, opening our eyes to what you are doing now in this life of ours, so that we may see the evidence of the life that you have for us. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.